To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Yo, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So on today's podcast, I have back on my friend Dan Picard. Uh, this is a live episode we did at the expo. Man, I just um, so much respect for this guy's bow hunting. Uh, so much respect for him as a person, as a human being. He's just a great guy and one of the best bow hunters I know. And um, you know, Dan's really good at hunting all species, but um, where he really thrives or his true love and passion is hunting elk. Uh, so when we can get together and have an in-depth elk conversation, it's really fun. And this is one of the best ones we've ever recorded. One of my favorite conversations. Just got done killing two giant bulls this season. Uh, this was amazing. So I really enjoyed it. I think you guys will enjoy it too. Just want to thank our sponsors before we get rolling here. I want to thank Cryptech. Uh, so impressed by Cryptech. I have such a great technical mountaineering gear system put together. Uh, I have everything from early season all the way to late season. My favorite favorite camo pattern they make, and I like all their camo patterns, but that Obscura Transitional blends in everywhere and blends in the best I've ever seen of any pattern out there. Uh, I think it really helps and gives me an advantage in the mountains. So uh, if you're in the market for any new gear, make sure to check them out over at Cryptech. And we've also got a good podcast coming up with Justin Sparks, who is um, just a diehard bow hunter, student of the game made for a great recording so look forward to releasing that to you guys as well i also want to thank everly stock uh, everly stock builds all different packs for every different use uh, they've got their main frame with the vapor series where you can get a 2500 5000 or 7500 cubic inch pack ultra lightweight i think the whole setup comes in under five pounds i think four and a half and um, just a great setup for packing a lot of weight and using that frame uh, really packs meat and heavy loads well so I uh, really like to use that for expedition uh, trips uh, alongside with um, the uh, uh, destroyer um, such a great pack uh, I've used that one for years and still a go-to for expedition style trips uh, they also have a couple packs like the little big top I'll use that for like three to five days and the kite pack um, is a great pack for day hunting. It sucks real tight to my back so I can move and hunt with it on. Uh, it'll also pack a load out if I need it and then everything I need for the day. So if you're in the market for any new packs or pack accessories, make sure to go check them out over at Everly Stock. I also want to thank the guys over at Mountain Tough Fitness. Uh, Mountain Tough, uh, it's a program where they designed an app to do these workouts and they have three different types of workouts you can do one with no equipment you can do a workout with minimal equipment which i believe is um uh two dumbbells a kettlebell and a pull-up bar i'm almost there in my garage to where i can step up and start doing those workouts and then they also have full gym workouts uh, all the thinking's been done. They just make a great workout for the mountains. Uh, stick more muscle on their frame. Uh, I went and did a workout with these guys in a podcast. I really enjoyed it. 
So uh, I'll become a, uh, or I'll, I'll uh, stay a member of the Mountain Tough um, program. And um, man, I really like it. It's going to help take my fitness to a new level uh, along with my running and, and um, working out. It's just the perfect fit for me. So I uh, really like these guys, really like this program. If you're looking to take your season to the next level, go check them out over at Mountain Tough Fitness. I also want to thank Black Ovis. Black Ovis is an internet retail shop that has absolutely everything you need for your next hunt. Uh, they do a, a point system where one point equals one dollar. You get rewarded those points for leaving reviews or for ordering product, and that can go to save you some cash on your next order. Uh, they have all the top name brands as well as their own name brand. And um, you can count that they're going to carry quality gear. They have a knowledgeable staff to answer any of your questions. And you can get all set up. And you can also save 10% off your next order by putting in the promo code ELEVATED10. So check those guys out over there at Black Ovis. Also check out the app Camo Fire. Uh, you can save a pile of money on all the top name brands. Uh, they're huge discounts, and there's 80 new hunting deals that come up every 24 hours. So if you pay attention, if you watch the app for a piece of gear you need, it'll come up, and you can save a pile of money by getting it. And I know um, my buddies Dan and Dylan sure like this app and uh, pick up some good gear. I think I think Dylan told me he picked up something the other day. We met up for a run, and um, he said he, he had... Uh, picked up something there and then he'd also used the promo code from Black Ovis so I appreciate him um, and with that over at Eastman's you can check out our Mule Deer School really think it helps cut the learning curve down by years it's absolutely everything I know about hunting Mule Deer along with Dan Picar and Guy Eastman you can check that out and I think for the price point I think it's like a hundred bucks for a year uh, for the price point um, Man, I, I just think um, uh, it's a huge value. So you can check that out. Check out Eastman's Tag Hub as we're in the, the research part of bow hunting season where we're applying for tags and trying to get these hunts. And uh, it's a great resource. Uh, I'm on it about every day right now trying to draw some hunts. So check that out. Check out uh, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal. Uh, just got a new article I got to crank out here for the sheep issue that's going to be on backpacking meals as I don't use a lot of the uh, dehydrated meals or I, I make them myself and so I'm uh, going to write a quick article for that um, but always new stuff coming out. We pour a heart and soul into that magazine. I love the subscriber stories uh, and make sure you send in your story. Kill a big buck or a big bull. Uh, give away a, a, a bunch of great um, gifts for being published in the magazine and then extra copies of the magazine, things of that nature. So check that out and uh, check us out on the YouTube for um, Beyond the Grid Hunting. Should have some new hunts coming up. I've seen just a little bit of footage coming out and uh, can't wait to see the completed films. And also be on the lookout for both of these films that me and Dan talk about today. Uh, his two biggest bulls to date killed in one season and uh, amazing footage. I can't wait to see these come out. So I'll make sure to give you a heads up uh, when we're releasing them. And um, with that, man, let's get into this podcast. Eastman's Elevated. I'm your host, Brian Barney. Dan Bacar is the guest today. Uh, here we go. <laughs> no, this way. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have anything I can put? Any garbage or? There's some garbage, maybe. 
Are you going to need this piece of plastic? That's crucial to the operation. <laughs> right. <laughs> no one's to be surprised, and they're like, oh, I need this. And I'm like, Go. Oh, yeah, right? Bad. Dan, how are you? Good. Good. Good Man, to be here. Oh, it's good to sit down with you. Yeah. Gosh, it's been a while since we've done a podcast. It has. It was before your two giant bulls. That's right. That's right. <laughs> what an elk season you had, man. Yeah, it all came together this year. Crazy. Well, and you just uh, love to hunt elk with every fiber in your being, you know, with your with your bow and arrow. It's so cool yeah. to see you uh, kill a personal best and then do it all over again and kill yeah. another personal best, or at least both of those bulls were just stompers. Yeah, huge. Beyond anything that you think you're gonna, going to encounter on public, you know, for yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, I've been on bulls with buddies and family, and it's like, you know, I'll never be that lucky to run across something mm-hmm. like that. That's what you think, right? Mm-hmm. But it's just one of those years. That's that's the beauty of hunting because you just never know what you're going to run into out there. Mm-hmm. And that that's obviously a draw to it for me. But, yeah, special season for sure. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. I know what you're saying. Um, you know, uh, uh, I, I know, you know, you're a great elk hunter. You know, I know I'm a good elk hunter. And I know, you know, I like to target more mature bulls. I mean, for me... Yeah. Uh, the areas I hunt, usually it's like a, a 320 to 360 bowl like I've got. Like that's that's what really gets me excited and I'm fired up to go chase. But that's usually what I end up killing, which is, um, you know, I, I shouldn't complain or I'm not complaining. I love chasing those bulls and I'll do it till the day I die. Uh, but I know what you're saying is that next level, that upper echelon, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, I, I almost feel like the same way, like, oh, I'll, I'll kill some great bulls, but yeah, I don't know if I'll ever kill one like that. And yeah. then you win a season where you killed two of them. Yeah. Unbelievable. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the one Wyoming bull is so heavy and um, so much tine length. Uh, what were the beams on that thing? It's 59 and four eight. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, like over 50 are good beams. But once yeah. you start approaching those upper 50s and 60 inch main beams, that's incredible, man. It, yeah. I mean, looking at the record book. 59-inch beams are very, very rare, mm-hmm. very rare. There's only a few bulls that, I mean, and there's bulls that are over 60, mm-hmm. but it's still very, very rare. Mm-hmm. It takes a special animal, and, and not only the genetics, but the right year, the right time in that bull's life, the right feed. That bull has to go through the winter and come out of the winter good. Mm-hmm. And so there's so many things I think have to come together for a bull to grow that big. And it, we're talking the most rugged wilderness. This is not easy living for anything back there. These elk are not getting any agriculture. They're living the, the toughest life that an elk can live in the lower 48. Real life. Yes. A, a mountain life a for mountain an elk. Life, yeah. 100%. Wolves, grizzly bears. And, and this bull, you know, it's, it's not only the, the size, the score. I mean, that's, it's awesome, right? But the age of this bull. Maturity. Yeah. That's what gets me going, too. And beyond anything that I've seen, no ivory left, down to the gum. Uh, I've, I've seen teeth with incisors that were worn down more than this bull, but this bull was half of his in- incisors were gone. And I'm still waiting to hear back how old this bull is. I sent his incisor in to get aged. Oh, did you? Be- because it's so fascinating to me. Oh, text me when you get that I information. Will. I, I will. love to hear. And, you know, you, you can look at, their molars and be like, you know, this bull's, you know, six to nine or, or whatever based on molar wear. <laughs> but you really don't know because it varies so much. Yeah, a bull can have age, but the dirt and the 
um, the minerals and the material that's in the soil and in the vegetation that they eat also determines on how fast those teeth wear down. Mm. And for, for example, my dad's bull that he killed in 2018 in the breaks, he didn't look you know, overly old and his teeth were in good shape and they were really weren't uh, worn down very much. We sent those teeth to the lab and he came back, he was 11. Wow. And you don't really hear very many bulls that are over 10. Like, no. And especially like management plans for like the states, everything's managed from, you know, five to eight. Mm-hmm. Like there's nothing, there's no management plans that are out there to be for, you know, a bull management to be over eight years old. There's always bulls that make it through, right? And they get old, but it's, it's rare, especially, and going back to my dad's bull, I mean, that's, once again, that's easy country to make a living in the breaks, right? Winters, I mean, it takes a lot for an elk to be affected by a winter, mm-hmm. you know, the snow, because they just, they do so well in it. But you have that low country like the breaks, easy living. You don't really have like a winter range and summer range. It's all, they, they're just nomadic. They move around in that country. And I don't know, they follow the green up. They follow water, depending on the year. You've hunted that, that country. You know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've you know, experience some of that too. But that's also fascinating to me too. Like that bull that didn't really look that old, but he was 11. Mm-hmm. And then my bull that I killed this year in Wyoming, it's, it's way more rugged, way more rough. I think it's more of a volcanic uh, substrate in the, in the soil. So I think that's going to be, he may not be as old as what I think. You know, I'm, I'm thinking he's 15, 16. That's my guess. Mm-hmm. You know, that's some you know just a wild guess mm-hmm. but we won't know until it comes back but that's part of learning about elk and it, it kind of brings it all back together of why i got into elk hunting mm-hmm. and why i love elk so much is it's just not the antlers it's just not you know about the score Mm-mm. which i love mm-hmm. i love it i love big bulls too yeah but it, it's about hunting bulls it's, it's about hunting big mature six points you know yep. and it yeah, uh, to me, it doesn't have to break a record to get me excited or to have me thrilled to death. To kill yep. a big mature bull with my bow and arrow, I am stoked beyond belief, especially when it's, you know, my target uh, age class, you know, big yes. mature herd bull, outsmarted them, got an arrow in them. So you're right. That is yep. what it's about. But you get good enough at elk hunting and you elk hunt long enough and eventually you run into one of those big guys and you're good at capitalizing on opportunities. Yes. Uh, like, uh, you've been doing it for so long in so many different places, you know, uh, bow hunting that is. And so, uh, uh, one really gets good at capitalizing on these opportunities when you find a bigger age class animal. But I can remember over the years, you know, I talk about how tough a giant bull or a giant buck is, but for every one I've killed, there's at least a couple that I've screwed up, if not more. And I bet you it's the same for you. Absolutely. It's, it's funny you bring that up. And I've thought a lot about this. And I, I take bow hunting very seriously. It, it's my life. And it, it has been since I was 15 years old when I really took it to that next level and took it seriously. You always hear stories of, you know, the big one that got away. And it's happened to everybody, right? But, you know, at that age, and especially when I gained a little more freedom, I graduated college and I could kind of do what I wanted, I knew that I that's my worst nightmare is for a giant animal to, for me to screw that up and it get away. So how can I, how can I rectify that? How can I get to a point where if I ever encounter an animal, that's a once in a lifetime animal, I don't want to screw it up. And how can I get to that point? 
And at that time, it's, it's repetition. And so this year really brought my mindset and my bow hunting career to full circle, I believe. Mm -hmm. Because of all those years of, of going to Hawaii and doing these off-season hunts and getting all these repetitions in that we talk about so much and it's so important. When I encountered that big bull, I knew it was big, but the last thing that I focused on, because I've prepared myself for 20 years, mentally, mentally. And so the last thing that I thought about was how big he was. I just, I naturally waited for those windows and I waited for the, that just, just that movement and you're reading the animal and that, that's another thing, repetitions with bow hunting, is you get really good at reading the animals. And so all this all came together and shooting that bull was, I didn't even think about it. Just, I'm just doing what I do because mm -hmm. I've done it for so long and I've, I've been in that situation for so long. And so that was one of those instances where all that work and all that dedication to the lifestyle, like paid off. It came full circle. Mm -hmm. It is funny, right? As, you, as we work on these skill sets and we gain this experience and experience is such a great teacher, teaches you what you can get away yeah. with, what you can't. You mess up, you make mistakes, you learn from it, you get better. Uh, but when you're out there, you just have the skill set you have to get it done. You show yep. up at the trailhead, you show up for the hunt, and you have the skills that you've worked hard to get. Uh, but you're right in that it starts to come to fruition. And it's, it's not always when you want it. Like, I always yeah. think you're ready for success, you know, a couple years or a few years before you see it. You have to put in the work, build your skill sets. And I, you know, I remember how tough it was to kill, you know, uh, you know, like a 320 size six point with my bow and arrow and go out and do that. I remember I failed at it. I'd mess up encounters. I'd get chances and then I'd have to regroup and come out at the next year. Like it was this huge challenge. But once you start to build your skill sets and your instincts and you start to improve all these things, all the way from, you know, uh, uh, map research, all the way to learning units, to being able to put yourself in different habitats and being able to dissect it. Like you said, the reading the mannerisms, reading the, the attitude the animals almost know what they're thinking or when they're on alert and when they're not and what they're doing and and being able to integrate ourselves into this scenario and then be able to give ourselves the best chance possible at success and it doesn't happen every time but when you build your skill sets all of a sudden bulls just start to fall all of a sudden there's big yep. six points that fall every season there's big bucks that fall every season because you get really good at at creating these opportunities and then also you get really good at closing on these opportunities and and it's something that you never stop learning or improving at like i'm still I still want to become more efficient in the woods, more efficient at stalking and more efficient at all these skills. But it, it really is showing up on these hunts with your skill set. It's not like getting super lucky. Yep, absolutely. You got to have the skill set. And, and what you just illustrated right there, you have the desire and the willingness to learn and get better all the time. And if you really want to progress in whatever species maybe you like to hunt or just bow hunting in general, you have to have that mindset and have the mindset that like I need more work I need to do this more I need to and have that you know willingness to learn and be a student of the game we, we've talked about this right I mean it's it comes second nature uh, for us that you know we've been doing this a long time and if you want to get good at something you just have to be a student your whole life mm -hmm. and it's something that you'll never master either mm -hmm. I don't believe I ever will mm -mm, I want to get better every year yep and I want to do it as much as I can because I know that is the gateway to getting better at something, mm -hmm. just like 
anything in life, mm -hmm. right? The more you do it, the better you get. Mm -hmm. Simple. That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah the, more the more you do it, the better you get. So it is getting those reps and getting that experience, and it's not fun all the time. I mean, yeah. to be a bow hunter and be committed to your craft, you have to take chances. And so you're going to states and you're going to general season tags or easy to draw or over the counter, or maybe it was a, uh, took a couple points to draw and you're showing up in this place and you're not sure how the hunting's going to be. You have this unit to hunt and, and you have to dive in, but you know, I, you know, I've got my system and, uh, down pretty good now where, you know, I know the tags that I'm going to draw are going to be decent hunts with quality animals in there. I just need to get down there, dissect the unit and dive in. And again, it comes down to the skill set. but you get better and better at doing that over the years and you do have to fail. I don't know how many yeah. hunts, you know, I still eat tags every year and, um, uh, you know, there's been a lot of tags or a lot of hunts that are busts and it's, it's tough when you put so much into it, you take a 10 day vacation and you show up to a unit and you didn't get the weather. So the migration hunt isn't on, or maybe you did the research and they had great success, but had a die off. I mean, there's always things that can happen or you get down there and, uh, all of a sudden a bunch of people have found out about it. And there's hunting pressure everywhere and they've chased them around. And so you're always going to be facing these challenges, but to get better at it, you just have to spend time doing it. And, you know, we, we, don't all, you know, have the luxury of, of having, you know, just this immense amount of time. Me and you are both fortunate. We do a lot of bow hunts, but it is about like working this experience in other ways, working it in scouting, working it in horn hunting, spring bear hunts, you know, Hawaii, like you do traveling to different places, doe tags, like we, you know, yep. this is, this isn't anything new for us. Like you were stating, it's kind of what we talk about every time we get together, but that is the key to really being consistently successful is getting the reps, getting the practice. And it's something that doesn't happen in two years or five years no. or 10 years. It doesn't happen in a decade. No. And, and that's what you have to be aware of was when you start the journey is that you're in it for the long haul. If it's something that you truly love and you're truly passionate about, it's the long haul. Mm -hmm. That's what it takes. You can enjoy those lucky successes. We've all been there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that big buck I killed 10 years ago, I haven't seen a buck that size since. So there's some luck there. I had the skill sets that I had at the time allowed me to put myself in the position and get it done. But there's a lot of luck there. Mm -hmm. And I feel like now I've progressed so much since then. And that's 10 years ago. That's, that's a long time ago, a lot of hunting mm -hmm. in my world because <laughs> mm -hmm. I've, I've made it a priority in my life. But, yeah, don't expect to, to you know, nail it after mm -hmm. five years or seven years. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a lifetime to really get it figured out. That's exactly right. Yeah. It, it is the, the long game and the long journey. It's such a, a learning curve that you have to put in, in your time and pay your dues. And, and yeah, it's the long haul. And so you, you just learn, you know, I think now, you know, I don't put as much pressure on myself for success either. And, and I enjoy the entire experience. Like I'm looking forward to the adventure and I'm looking forward to backpacking and finding animals and making plays. And a lot of my favorite hunts and best hunts are hunts that I am unsuccessful on. It, you know, I really pushed my limits and it didn't come together, but boy, what an adventure in one of the wild, pl wildest places in the lower 48. So I think it is like so much of um, today's day and age you know, we had to really work to focus on the present moment and not be in our phones or in our emails or in our text. Yeah. You know, so it's on these hunts. It's really trying to be in that present moment and go, I am hunting elk and it is September and I got my bow in my hands. And yeah, it's tough. Maybe I haven't seen an elk for five days, but this is what I live for. This is it. I'm doing it right now. And after you start killing bigger bucks and bigger bulls, 
uh, it just becomes easier. You yeah. like you said, you didn't even. It was a giant bowl, yeah. and you didn't have this immense amount of pressure on yourself. You're just, it's a good shooter. I'm going for it, and you're just focused on trying to kill that bowl. But you didn't have this immense amount of pressure on yourself like you would have if you found that bowl 10, 12 years ago, and you might have screwed it up on on a bowl like that. Not that yep. you didn't have the skills then, but you're just um, a better bow hunter now. And so after you start to see success, you realize that. Uh, success isn't what makes me happy. It's the it's the act of being able to bow hunt. And really the funnest stuff about bow hunting is like being in the action, getting into great elk hunting, great deer hunting, where you're running around and making plays and giant six point there and you're chasing him through the, and he's bugling and 300 bugles that night. Like that is what I live for, you know? And through that, eventually I'm going to get an arrow in a nice bowl, but I just try to enjoy that and soak it in. Are you, are you doing the same thing on your hunts? Like really so in these big wilderness adventures where you don't see bow hunters where you know because things change over the years yeah yeah things change herds change the number of animals change uh, so that makes it tough but i think now i've hit a point where i was thinking about that you said like 10 years ago it might you know turn out differently i think like 10 years ago or maybe even the first five years of my career like if i see a giant animal i would overthink it I would try too hard because, you know, it's a giant, you want to kill it. So you probably push it, try too hard, and it's probably not going to work out. Just the nature <laughs> of so it, right? True. We've like, been there when we started. Yeah. But, like, now it's you sit back more. Uh, you, you get a feel for, you know, the mood that that bull's in and what's he doing. And just you're a little more relaxed about it. You know it's a giant bull, but you still have to remember it's just a bull elk. Mm-hmm. It's just that mule deer buck. Mm-hmm. They're still just a buck and just a bull. They're, they're immortal, mm-hmm. right? They're not, yeah, they might be giant that year, you know, a, a great specimen for the species, but they're still just another animal, and they still do animal things. They're driven by feed and water and breeding, depending on the time of year. So you have to keep that in mind. And, and I found at, at a younger age, I didn't have that perspective. I thought these were supernatural beings out here that have evaded hunters and they're super monsters and there's so much pressure and you know they're so hard to find and this and that but locating them is the hardest thing Mm -hmm. and then to kill them they're just another bull Mm -hmm. and like this bull i killed he's by himself and i i didn't do anything but bugle at him i know what he's saying when he bugles i bugle back he came from a mile away right to me and I just sat there the whole time because it's like I'm getting a feel for what this attitude of this bull is I can tell he's by himself with his his bull calling cows bugle his searching bugle and so what's that searching bugle just like more of a high pitch um doesn't have the growl to it it's you, you can tell he's not barking at cows or how do you tell yeah so he's out there he's searching and so you get that high note that really carries he's really wanting to broadcast that sound and he's telling cows to come to him and depending on how wound up he is this bull would chuckle every other time every other bugle which it just means he's he's really longing like searching for those cows and he's getting fired up he's really fired up yeah because you can get bulls too that'll just give off a a nice location bugle with that high note and not chuckle at all and they'll come right in they're by themselves too but this is a bull that, like, I caught him on the right day. And that's the other thing. Every day is different with how these bulls are going to act. And he, he was really needing to find 
cows that day. He was really wound up. And this was at 11 in the morning. Mm. There's no reason this bull should be on his feet at 11 in the morning like this. And I, I'm listening to him. And at first, it was just like the faintest bugle that I could hear way over there. And so it's like, well, heck, I'll give it a shot. And I just rip out the same thing. Just a nice, long, loud location bugle with that high note. It's that ear-ringing high note to just broadcast over to him. And he hit it right back. But it still took him an hour to come over here. He wasn't in a hurry. It's just not like he just came galloping in. Still, these older bulls, they take their time, and they want to feel out what the herd is doing. So he would come a little bit, and I would bugle to him after he bugled. And then I throw in some, some just lost calf calls as well. And this is the time of year, early September, that these bulls are, are very, they're very territorial, and they're very dominant, and they probably haven't had a confrontation with another bull yet if that makes sense. So they haven't had that confrontation. So he thinks he's the king of that area. He's a big old mature bull. He's been doing this a long time. And so you can get away with that. He's like, well, why is this bull over here with cows? You know? And so he, he didn't like it, but he still, he didn't just come galloping in like you'll see young bulls do. He's got the head to work his way in and he's, he's gathering what I'm saying back to him over a course of an hour to see if this is an encounter that he has, you know, a good chance of stealing my cows or, or fighting me off based on my emotion, based on what I'm saying back to him. Mm -hmm. So as he's bugling and he's really searching that bull calling cows bugle, uh, he wouldn't chuckle every time. And I would just, I'd give it back to him. And then there'd be silence for 10 minutes. And it's so such an important piece of what you're saying. When you're calling in a bull, don't call too much. Yes. It has to be seductive. Yes. Yes, and I'm, I'm usually answering him. I don't want him to cool down either. So after 15 minutes, if I don't hear anything, or maybe 10 minutes, I'll give out, you know, not a passionate bugle, but I'll give out like a nice location bugle, not too long, and just to make sure he's coming. Just to make sure I've got you. We're talking here, buddy. Just make sure that you're still coming. And then, you know, he, he bugle back. He's still interested in, in, in coming over. So you got to factor in the time of the day, too, that you don't expect him to come, come that far at 11 in the morning mm -mm. on a hot day. I mean, it's still summer temps still, you know, mm -hmm. that early in the season. So that was kind of odd, I would say, for an old mature bull to be that active that late in the morning. And so that was another factor that told me that, hey, this bull's serious. He's on his feet at 11, and he wants company. I bet I can get him to come in. So that's why I just stayed put. And of course, I'm looking at my surroundings and I'm looking at the geographical features where I can ambush him when he comes in and the terrain's on my side. I had a cliff. I was on top of a cliff that was about 20 yards high. And so I had this nice feature. So if he wanted to come see where those cows and bulls are, he was going to have to come up and crest over that cliff and look back on this timbered flat where I was calling. So I run back in this timbered flat and then I come back up from the cliff edge and I could actually glass across the basin and, and see where he was. And so I'm, and, and they'll, they'll pinpoint you every time. Of course, those, any bull will pinpoint you, but he will come to the last point where he can see where that call comes from mm -hmm. and they can pinpoint you from a long ways. And so I, that's another reason why I stayed put. And of course I was second guessing myself when I was looking down here. I'm like, I, w I wonder if I can get, in a little bit better position because once he gets into that 60 yard range that's kind of the sweet spot where if he's within 60 
I, I, I'm probably going to get a, a good shot at him. And yeah, 45 minutes later, here he comes and he, he took his time. And so I thought that was very interesting. And, and you're learning about this. I'll never forget this, just like any other elk encounter that ends successfully or maybe a, you know, a big bull that didn't end successfully. But the, the, the actions, the, the mood that these bulls in, they're always different. And it's, it varies any time of year too, depending on what stage of the rut they're in. For example, maybe the third week of September, a bull might be a little bit more shy of coming in for a confrontation. At this point, everybody really knows who's boss. And to, so to, to bugle in a bull like later in the year, maybe after he's already been whooped, it's probably won't work. Oh, or he's got cows. Yes. Or yeah. There's so many other factors. And yeah. so I can't stress that enough. It's timing, right, mm-hmm. with where these bulls are at in their cycle for that fall. Mm-hmm. Staging up, getting ready for the rut. They haven't had a confrontation yet. He hasn't found cows yet. And so it's just there, everything that needed to happen ideally was ideal hmm. for that scenario. Huh. Yeah, that's um, that's so fun to hear about, Dan. Um, I love uh, what you said. It's like um, all this elk experience, it, it teaches us to read those mannerisms of the animal. And it's it's not it's reading the emotion of the animal. And you don't just do it by looking at them. You're also doing it by their sound. So as you're calling in this bowl, you're reading his emotion. And, and um, you're reading to see if he's going to answer you. Because when he answers you or cuts you off, you know that he's getting aggressive. Like, this is irritating him. Yep. He is interested in what we're doing here. Uh, so many times when I... You know, calling is one of the most effective ways to kill elk, but they're not always in the mood to call. And this is, of course, you know, a wilderness area, but these bulls do get in this mood to call. And I think I need to, you know, implement that into my game. I've got so hooked on the spot and stalking of these elk and really like using my hunting skill set to read where the elk are and where they're calling from, keeping the element of surprise. And it works really well for me. But there's times when I catch a bull in the right mood that I know I could cow call in or I could bugle in from back in the day when I've called in a hundred different bulls. And so, uh, you know, I need to keep that, that option open and be carrying calls with me in it, not use it as a crutch or a backup. I see too many guys that just don't have uh, this this strategic look at elk, or they start losing all their uh, their elk instincts when they start calling. It's just like they lean on it like a crutch, and they they call, and then they call out of desperation, and they're calling back and forth, or maybe chasing this bull to his bed. They're not really reading where the bull's headed or where the bull's going. And I see guys they'll start calling, and they'll walk right into the meadow with the elk. You know, they're just not paying attention or looking to their surroundings or using the cover to move through terrain, walking in the wide open, and they just rely too heavy on the call. So it is. Uh, like, um, uh, and one of the biggest mistakes is calling too much. You really want to call, uh, 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 to call less is to call more because that's what the elk are doing there. And so it really is reading this behavior and then using the landscape like you did, like off that cliff and to yes. call them to that point. And, and it is timing. Who knows if that bull would have called in for the rest of the year after that yes. day, after he got cows, after he fought things out, but you caught him on the right day and capitalized on it. So, uh, yeah, I really need to get back to some of my calling roots because there are those days and times where you catch those elk in that right behavior where that is the move. But, um, yep. 
man, that is so cool. Yeah, you're right. And when you talk about that, it's all your elk hunting experience coming to fruition on a big bull like that, because it is a uh, hundred right moves you have to make to to kill that bull. And um, you played it right, slow played him, 11 o'clock, read his mannerisms, would wait 10 minutes to call to him, and then, oh, I'll give him another check, see where he's at. Bugle, he cuts you off. You okay, exactly. he's still coming. I'll wait a little bit. I'll wait. And then he bugles. No, I'm not going to answer that one. And then he bugles again. Oh, I'll give him one. You know, you just exactly. kind of try to read this um, scenario, and you're right as these bulls, they all have personalities. Like, they... They, and, and they're all in different phases of the rut. And the rut ebbs and flows throughout September. It's not just a straight line to the peak and then a straight line down. They come into a hot rut when cows are in estrus and then they go out of it, you know. And so it's really reading these situations that you come across while you're elk hunting and figuring out what the right tactic is. Um, what about that giant wide Montana 7 you killed later? Did you call that bull in? I didn't. And that And that's... I'm thinking as you're, you're taught, it's so true. And calling elk is, it's 25% calling. Like you hear guys talking about like bugling and bulls or calling elk and you know, that's the tactic they have. It's really only just a small fraction of it. You still have to have the, all these other skill sets yes. like you illustrated and being able to read the bulls, read the behavior, you know, read what's going on and still have those instincts to get it done because I rely on spot and stock too, for mm -hmm. sure. I know you're really good at it. And, and it's important. It's important because you cannot call every single bull in. And these guys that only rely on calling, they're covering huge amounts of country and playing with the bulls that are receptive, receptive to calling. And if the, you don't find a bull that's receptive to calling, you're going somewhere else. You could be walking away from elk just yeah. because they don't want to respond like you, you want them to. You yeah. are. And a lot of that country, it's so thick. That might be the only tactic anyway. Like spot and stock might be tough. I mean, you could sit a wallow or something too. And so I get it, but you can't just rely on just that one tactic. No. And so back to the Montana bull, this is a good example. I don't like sitting in water. It's not very fun. But that's what needed to happen in this location. I would rather go out and chase them, either spot and stock or call at them in the right scenario. But in this instance, sitting water was the thing to do. That mountain that I hunted on, it was set up for a water hole. It was the, this is the only water on that hill. It's just so beautifully set up up there. It's the only water source, and the numbers are there. And so when there's that many elk, and this is private property, this is so it's a little bit different than hunting public land as far as densities go and elk that aren't getting pressured so that's another factor too so you're believing in the tactic and knowing that if i was just to go wander around i'm going to be bumping elk and just probably blowing that mountain out whereas i can just sit water and stay pretty low impact and have several days of hunting if that makes sense it does and so that's very important. It's a, it's a last resort. I have zero interest in sitting water, but, <laughs> but if I believe yeah. in it yeah. and that's what needs to be done, I'll sit there for 10 days. I don't yep. care because that's what needs to be done. It's just like getting crap for like, you know, hunting whitetails. And, you know, I'm planning going back to Iowa and, and hunting whitetails in the next year or two. And uh, my buddy I was talking to, he's like, I know how you Western guys are. You guys won't sit. You're, you're going to want to like spot and stalk and rattle around. I'm like, dude, I've hunted whitetails. I know the process and the program on 
what needs to happen to not only blow the bucks, keep those bucks close and hunt low impact. It's sitting in a tree stand. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. I'll sit there 10 days if I know I'm going to have a chance at a big buck. I don't care what it takes. Mm -hmm. I may not enjoy it. It may not be my ideal method of hunting. But if you're believing in the process, which we've talked about so much in the past, you're believing in it, it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. It's going to happen. And that's, that's what this, this Montana hunt was. I sat three days at water, and a bull showed up with 25 cows that we had not seen and that we didn't know was around. And it can literally happen like that. Hmm. And that, that's all it was. I didn't do anything special. I didn't do anything that the next guy couldn't do. I just had the patience to sit there and believe that the right bull was going to come in. And I had bulls come in, nice bulls, nice six points and young bulls, some raghorns. And that was, I would say that was a, it was such a different experience because I don't, like I said, I don't sit water, but to be able to watch the elk behavior when they're coming into water and I'm just staying quiet and just observing elk, that's huge. And mm -hmm. getting to understand elk and understand why they're coming in and what they're doing. And for like example, I'm watching these elk come in and they come in so cautiously to the water, like a whitetail. And so that tells me that they, they probably know something's been up. They've smelled humans there before. And so they're super cautious. They still have to get water. And those bigger bulls, they're coming in in the middle of the night to get water mm -hmm. because they have age on them. This isn't their first rodeo, but mm -hmm. these young bulls come in throughout the day. And so you're just able to watch elk all day mm -hmm. coming in cows calves young bulls little bulls good bulls broken bull i mean everything under the sun mm. and so that was a cool experience mm -hmm. of just watching them and not really interacting with them but just observing mm -hmm. and so totally different than what how we me and you hunt mm -hmm. for elk but believing in that process and believing that you know longevity of hunting in there if it, it took me five six seven days i don't want to blow elk off that mountain i want to keep them there because that's where the cows are and this is the peak of the rut, and new bulls are showing up every day. Mm -hmm. And so knowing those behaviors and knowing the movements, believing in the process, and just being bored and sitting water and taking naps, a little bit different feel to an elk hunt, but you just never know what's going to wander in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's so many different tactics out there, and, and big mature bull elk are so tough to kill uh, They that it takes this adapting to the situation it takes this creative thinking and sitting a wallow like elk are so nomadic and so you can go find a good wallow and go sit it but there may be no elk around that uh hillside or that basin or so you could sit water for five days and you never see an elk but when you find a basin that's full of elk or like you you had private property and all the elk are on this hillside like you say then it doesn't make sense you've got so many elk so many yep. different smaller six-point bowls to try to get to a big one that it doesn't make sense to blow them all out of that country in the first day or two of hunting them and then have nothing to hunt but instead like you're able to adapt and sit that water and let all those elk be elk around you on that hillside and then get them to come into water and capitalize on it man that's that's um that's what what elk hunting is you know so to kill them a different method to have that 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 trick in your in in your your bag of tricks to be able to pull out and go yeah i'm gonna sit water on this one and same thing for me so 
I love hunting elk spot and stock, and so uh, my preferred method of doing that is to glass up these bulls in their feeding features. So I love to hunt them morning and night when they're in these open parks when I can keep an eye on them, I can see what they're up to, and I can try to keep with them and maybe follow them to their bedroom. But I love having eyes on bulls, and I hunt vantage points a lot. And so I rely upon my eyes, and I think almost a little too much. So this year I hunted a high-pressure hunting unit or mountain range that had a lot of elk in it, but the elk were just pressured. And I've hunted this spot before, and I've glassed up bulls, and I've gone for them, and so I know vantage points in there. But from the vantage points, I'm not turning up the big shooting bull, shooter bulls because these bulls that have to grow to five, six, seven years old, they've also adapted to the hunting pressure. And so they're not going to be out in the open where they get these hunters chasing them and calling at them. They're going to be in the timber. And so these bigger bulls are these six points that I was on, uh, and I kept on them for multiple days. I hunted a big bull for three days in there and he was in the the thicks and he was in thick timber and logged off country and mm. sure there was little openings in through it but you had to go hunt through it there's no master vantage point and then in the timber you had to go hunt through it and so I had to adapt my tactics so I'm not using my glassing so much I'm using more of my still hunting skill set like we would do like uh, in Hawaii when we hunt the thicks for axis deer mm. and so it's like this different different skill set that I haven't used much for hunting elk or that I've kind of uh, lost or forgotten. So I started hunting the thicks because the elk were in there and all of a sudden I just started to to hone in these still hunting tactics where you, you got to move and use their bugles to be able to locate them and know where they are and you know they're moving through and you're trying to keep with them in there but then you got to know when to slow down. When you're coming over a rise, when you're coming over a ridge you have to see them before they see you or the gig's up. And so hunting this timber it really made me tap into these hunting instincts and i just had some phenomenal hunting in there there was nobody in there and it was hunting this thick like country that i would never you know i would have told you a year ago no, i won't hunt in there i'll find them in the open but that's the same thing as the bugling guys uh i can't get too stuck in my ways where i'm only hunting them in the open only hunting them spot and stock only hunting them when i'm seeing them i'm not going to find next level success that way i've got to be able to adapt into the thicks and into the open parts and use a combination of glassing and still hunting and knowing when to slow down. But, man, I had a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, it was wild. And that style of hunting, that's the stuff that really makes you a better hunter all the way around. Because whether you're, you're stalking axis deer or pigs or whatever, that's what really separates you, for, you know, when it comes to elevating your game and elevating your spot and stock game is that still hunting and seeing those animals before they see you. And that just it elevates all the rest of those skills mm -hmm. because it's the hardest method, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, to spot and stalk something, still hunting. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's important hunting. And, you know, it's, it's not easy. Mm -hmm. It's not easy. I've failed more times doing it, hunting that way than I have any other mm -hmm. way, but it sure makes you a better hunter. Well, and even... Even if you are glassing them up or even if you know a location, yep. the majority of times you got to uh, lose sight of those animals and make your play on them. And then 
you know, you're pretty much still hunting at that point to relocate them again. Yeah. You just know there's a bull in that area, exactly. so you know how to slow down. But the same thing with hunting elk in the thick is if you um, uh, can hear their bugles and echo locate where they're at and kind of come up, oh, he's over this rise over here. Oh, he's on this drainage. And then you hear him bugle again and go, oh, he's on the other side. Yeah. I got to get over to the other side. So then you can move quicker. You still need to pay attention and keep your eyes up and look for elk. But you know you can cross that drainage and then you start looking for him coming up the other side. So it's like this echolocation and it's really about controlling your speed. Yeah. Like it's not about walking barefoot. It's, you know, but it's about walking slow enough uh, to make sure you're not making enough noise where you're going to turn the head of an elk where it looks in your direction. But it's really this speed because they, you know, like other ungulates, they catch movement uh, far above and before anything else. And so uh, you're right. The game is to see them and spot them through the trees. And I noticed that I glass um, the same whether I'm in thick or whether I'm in um, open country like you need to glass in front of you every five ten steps you need to pull up your binos and then pan through that timber and it's really tough to move slow and be engaged in still hunting for the entire duration of that hunt it's tough to move slow for two hours and to look around every tree and to keep disciplined and moving through there and the moment you lose that discipline and you just start walking through for a hundred yards and all of a sudden there's an elk staring at you or a bull staring at you and you blow up the whole scenario so it's really about keeping discipline when you're doing it, it too is. and i it's funny you're saying all this because that's what i'm thinking and it's still hard for me because mm -hmm. yeah you could still hunt for a whole day and not run into nope. anything so you know you have that part of your brain that's like i'm just wasting my time mm -hmm. and i'm like there's nothing in here i gotta bounce over this next basin and before you know it you're bouncing over here and <laughs> hunt axis <laughs> something blows at you Brick. or you know a bull bark barks mm -hmm. at you that's it happens every time and so yeah it's a mental game still hunting is all mental mm -hmm. i feel like and just controlling yourself and controlling you know the the being patient and the believing in the process it's huge it's all mm -hmm. mental mm -hmm. and it's uh keeping that element of surprise it's amazing how many things will just come together with the element of surprise i mean you might chase elk and they never know you're there and you keep the element of surprise and they may go away from you in bed and you, you didn't get them that day you got to hunt them that evening yeah. but it's amazing how many times you can just put yourself close to elk and you see that first one and they don't spot you you have the element of surprise it's amazing how many times they'll walk into you or they'll make a mistake or go over a ridge or the longer you can play that game and keep that element of surprise uh, just the more opportunity is going to present itself, the more mistakes that elk herd or that bull is going to make. And so um, it really is all those elements. And then, you know, the wind, of course, uh, elk hunting is just huge. You, you got to really understand what the winds are doing. And uh, again, that creative thinking, like we had, uh, I had good success, like these elk, they were not in the meadows. Like the minute daylight came on, they weren't in the meadows. They were already in the timber. You know, they'd feed them at night, uh, but they just would not be in the open to be seen during daylight hours. And so I was forced to go hunt them in these trees. Well, you know, it's one of those cases where uh, I'm getting on them and they're moving in the meadows and I'm in the dark listening to bugles, trying to echolocate to put myself in a position come first light. But the way these elk are moving up the hill, I just can't catch them from behind them, you know? So like I'm constantly moving moving from behind them, trying to play catch up, trying to move slow enough. And so instead of doing that, like one morning, I'm like, okay, they're feeding in this meadow down here. They're going up to that ridge to bed. 
I'm going to put myself up on that ridge and I'm going to let that wind switch around after this valley warms up and I'll hunt these elk after they get up to me up on this ridge line and I'll have the play and be above them. And, you know, it almost worked out in there. I got some good plays doing that, but sometimes you just need to come up with a different game plan. Yep. Yep. No, that's, that's all such perfect advice because elk are going to be where they're going to be and it's so much easier if you know where they're going to be and you can get there before they do Mm -hmm. that's probably a lot of my success or any elk hunter's success it's not chasing them Mm -hmm. you can find success sometimes doing that but getting to where they want to be before they get there that's when you know that you're one step ahead of them and you're probably going to punch your tag or at least get a shot at something Mm -hmm. yeah it's huge and i love killing them you know, first light, it's tough to kill a bull in an open park. It seems like they may be feeding for just a little bit in the morning, and then they go on the move. And most elk have a long way they travel in between their feeding and their bedding. Um, yep. You know, I, we're not talking 10 miles or anything like that, but they can go uphill for 3,000 vertical or 2,000 vertical and go lay on the ridge up there. Um, so you're right. It is like trying to figure out what these elk are doing where you can put yourself in a position and also – uh, it's like a fine line between hunting aggressive and hunting reckless. And if you, you know, a lot of times in the morning, so say I'm behind the herd and I'm chasing them up and there's a good time to kill elk when they make it around their bedding area and they start mingling around and feeding, kind of looking for their bed. They're more susceptible than when they first leave their feeding. They're on a direct move on a trail, on a ridge line, not feeding a whole lot along the way. They're moving, trying to get to their bed. So then they'll slow down. So, you know, they're susceptible to kill right there. But the other thing is, is you don't want to blow it. You don't want to screw them up because you know where elk are. And that evening, they're going to come back down to those parks and you may have a really good play on them. And so it's this fine line between trying to get into them and give yourself an opportunity, but also trying not to blow them out because they're going to be back on their feet in the afternoon, evening. I may have better wins and a better opportunity. And so, uh, It's just um, during an elk hunt, you're just forced with these decisions constantly about, uh, you know, giving yourself a chance, getting into elk, trying to arrow a bull and going, that wind isn't quite right. Or no, I think they're going to be bedding down and then they're going to be alert in that thick timber. And boy, it's going to be really tough to get on them then. I almost want to have them on their feet. And so instead, I'll just back off and just go, you know, it's 10 in the morning. They're bedding quick. He's not bugling much. I'm not sure where he's at. You know, I. I just got to wait till this evening. I know where a bull's at. I'm going to hunt him again this evening when he's coming back out and down, kind of reassess the situation and and then get back after him in the evening. But it's such a fine line, isn't Mm, it? It is. I'm sitting here thinking what you're saying, and it's a fine line. It's, It's hard to know what to do. It still is, you know, even now. And you get better at it, of course, but it's, I guess the moral of the story, and this is probably confusing, but when elk hunting if you know what it takes or you have some experience, stop trying so hard. Is that crazy to say? You know what I'm talking about, though. Sometimes so true. you got to know when you just need to sit back and wait for that bull to get on his feet and be able to get into striking distance, set yourself up to get into striking distance. And so, yeah, you just learn by doing it. 
-hmm. like what you're saying. It's all it's all spot on, and it's just practice, practice, practice doing it. You just got to get hunting and go do it. Mm -hmm. And it's a gray area, right? It's not it black is. or white. Whether I I don't know that I'm going to wait tonight and kill that bull. He might be gone and not even show up. Yep. It's like such a a gray area where you just um have to make your best assessment. You make your best decision, and then you have to live by that decision and let it play out. Absolutely. And you're right. The longer you can sit back and kind of play things and let elk be elk and then you know try to let them put themselves in a bad spot and try to capitalize just the better off you are but you know there's also times too where you're into elk where you play it too passive and you know all of a sudden you play it passive oh i'll get this bull tonight and then at night it doesn't pan oh, i'll get him in the morning and then pretty soon you get some hunters in there and he blows up the situation and you think gosh i should have gone after him that night you know he was in his bed or on that ridge line and i had a decent win and so it is this constant assessment and you don't get it perfect every time but all you can do is make your best theory of what they're gonna do and and i just say too is like don't get caught up like second guessing yourself or maybe I should do this or I should do this. Like it's good to look at all your options, but eventually you have to be decisive and you make a decision and you live by it, you know, and it, you don't, you don't know if it's black or white. It's pretty great. Even for us experienced guys, like you say, we get yeah. better at it and we trust in our um, uh, hunting instincts and we trust in our decisions now. And so it's like, no, we're going to do this. And, and we know we're making our best play, but it's still a gray area, tough decision. Yep. It's funny you say that. I was thinking about this Montana bull, and I actually want to show you some footage and see what you think because oh, I can't a, wait. a lot of times it's gray from the beginning to end, and you have to make a decision to the best of your ability. I look back on this shot, and, well, I'm not going to spoil it. I just want you to look at it, and I want to get your first opinion, but nobody's really has seen this footage, and hopefully we can, play, we can put it up on the, the video too so guys can see, but this bull came in with 30 cows, and he went down into the wallow. My wind was iffy this day. And those cows were up on the edge of the, the pond at like playing as centuries. And they eventually smelled me after two minutes. The, the cows blew out and the bull had no idea what was going on. And so he followed, but I called at him to stop him. And so I don't have a range, but I know my window to loose a good arrow is very, very small. So I'm making a judgment call to the best of my ability. So I'm gonna show you what happens here. Ooh. So I'm saying crap right there. Yeah. Oh, right. but the blood says different, doesn't it? Yeah. Top of the lungs right under the spine. Yep. And, and this is where video helps a ton because I can see how much this bull's bleeding. Yeah. Oh, yeah, the, the blood does it, doesn't it? But yeah. you're right, in the shot, it's pretty high and pretty forward. That's a dangerous spot. But those lungs, they do go right up to that spine. People talk about that hollow spot. That there's, not, there's not much of a dead zone there. It's like if you're under the spine, you seem to clip those lungs. That's wild, man. And so, like, a part of me was like, Dan, that was reckless. That was bull crap because I didn't know the range of that bull. That's but why the shot went high, That's right? why it was high. Yep. But I knew about what it was because, and that's why ranging is important and knowing your distances. So my sight was set at 60 uh, at the wallow. I stayed back that day because my wind was bad, so I had to stay back. So I was 60 yards. And where that bull ran up, I knew he was beyond 60, but I didn't, I didn't know how far. I thought he was 70. So I put some daylight with my pin over his back, 
and I hit high. So I don't know how far that bull was from me, but probably like 64 because it didn't drop as much as I thought, maybe 62. Once you get out there, it really starts dropping off. But it didn't really drop that much. So I'm making a decision in that split second of time to the best of my ability based on the knowledge that I've gathered from my yardage and range and all my experience that's come together. And that shot could have been bad. That could have been a wounded bull and gone forever. Or you hit that dorsal aorta artery and clip the top, top of the lungs. You know I dissected this thing because I was like, what in the world did I hit? But that dorsal aorta artery that runs up, comes from the lungs, goes along the spine and goes up to the jugulars. That's what that was. Oh, that's, that's what it that was. Hit. Did it's, you clip the top of the lungs too? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. Okay. I don't think it would have been enough to kill that bull if I wouldn't have got the, that artery as well. Really? Yep. Okay. Because it was just it was just too oh, high. I'm so glad you dissected that bull. That's yes. so cool to watch the video of it and where the shot is and the blood coming out and then to hear you talk about it. Yeah. So it's that main the main tube or the main artery that then fuels uh, the aorta, the neck and uh, head and everything. And back to the femoral. It's it's oh. the big connector. Yeah. Yeah. It fuels everything. It comes from the heart. It's everything that comes up. How big is it? Like a Pinky size, size. Pinky. Yeah, yeah okay. it's pretty big. Maybe a little bigger. Maybe your index finger. Yeah, it's a big pipe, and it sits right in between the lungs, and then right below the spine. Yes, and then it runs right in there. So it's it's kind of sits in between the lungs, right? Not above it. it it's it's kind of above. Oh, it it's is kind of above because it's attached with connective tissue to the bottom of the sp- the spine, the actual bone, uh-huh. and those lungs settle a little bit. You know, so you have like what they call like that dead zone. Yep, a little bit, and. I was far enough forward where I did clip some lung too. If I would have missed that artery, I don't, that bull would have been gone because I just barely clipped the lungs. It didn't center up the lungs. Yeah. Front and high. Just, yeah. uh, uh, you get both of them. Um, gosh, I think I might've just barely just clipped the both other of one. them. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so, well, you know, and, and part of it's that broadhead you're shooting too is a, a bigger expandable does more damage when you hit those bowls where you might not have got that bowl with a fixed blade. I truly believe that. And that's why I preach about it. And it's not that, you know, I'm, I'm getting paid X amount of dollars to say, shoot this broadhead. It's because it's really changed lethality on bow hunting for me and what I've seen and how, you know, if I was shooting a smaller fixed head or a two or three blade fixed head, I don't think I would have recovered that bull. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I'm shooting a hybrid, you know, it's over an inch and a half expandable wings. Yeah, on the evolution thing. hybrid, right? Yeah, the yeah. evolution hide. Yeah. And I believe I, if I shot a small fixed head, I wouldn't have got that bull. Mm-hmm. But that's what a broadhead is, is about. It's about your bad shots. It's about saving your bacon on a bad shot, mm-hmm. not the good shots. Any broadhead's going to kill on a perfect shot. So true. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the broadhead that you shoot is about your bad shots, and that's a bad shot. And I still think of, like, would I have taken that shot again? I'm still, like, on the fence because that could have gone, you know, terrible very easily and gone the other way. But that's the world we live in as bow hunters, it too. It is. It's we live and die by a game of inches, and sometimes you're on the right side of the equation, and sometimes you're on the wrong, and you were on the right side of that equation. But yep. you uh, you do a really good job of picking your shots and placing good shots. like uh, you know, And that's why you think about that scenario and where the arrow hit, and you kind of assess the situation of whether you take it or not. So it's why you're in this mental conundrum is because um, you take pride in making good shots on these animals and making good decisions 
decisions, and sometimes they are split-second decisions, and uh, you know you hope you hope they go your way, but they don't always. It is it is bow hunting, yeah. and um, bad things can happen, and so we do have to make good decisions, and so you kind of build this. Um, uh, this right and wrong in your head or what you will or won't do, you know, and, um, uh, and, and then you have to live with it no matter what happens, yeah. but you, you can definitely assess it along the way and assess distance, assess the, the shot. And there is nothing worse than making a bad shot and losing an animal. Uh, but it, it does add to the experience to make a good shot and kill an animal. Boy, does that feel good to put that arrow exactly where you want it. It almost, it adds to the trophy to me. To me, it's, yes. it's as much as killing a good animal as making a good shot on an animal. Like, that's what I'm striving for. And so I take a lot of pride in putting a perfect arrow through that animal. And um, It is bow hunting. It doesn't always happen perfect, but we just try the best we can. And that's all you can do. And you have to take it so seriously. And, uh, and I do, and I, I respect these animals so much. The last thing I want to do is, you know, pin cushion one. It's the and worst. And let, let them run onto private oh or my gosh. somewhere else. And there's That's only so many bulls in these herds. Yes. Like, there's, you know, you can't just go around wounding bulls. And, you know, it's just a... Uh, uh, it's just not being a good steward of the land. It's not giving respect to the animals we love so much. Like our job is to make a good, clean kill and get that thing done. You yep. know. Yep, absolutely. So it just a, what a crazy turn of events. Thanks for showing on me that, that hunt. Yeah, and it's wild. The other thing I want to touch on too, which kind of stumped me, and I, I learned a lot here. So on a hit like that, how long am I going to give that bull before I go track him? I mean, I've seen hits in the past of guys hitting them in the femoral artery and they run 50 yards and tip over and die mm -hmm. so that would tell me to you know give that bull 30 minutes because mm -hmm. he's probably going to be tipped over and dead i would think so with the blood i saw yeah that's what i would have thought okay too. so that's what we did we gave him some time and then we went and looked for blood we didn't see great blood in the beginning so we gave him three hours because I was so nervous about him running on to the other property because we were getting close and I didn't want to push this bull. So it ended up being four hours later, we trailed this bull up and we ended up jumping him in the thick uh, dug fur, like small dug fur. It would have been impossible to get another shot on him. But this is four hours later, this bull is still alive. So I don't know if that is an indication that I didn't sever that artery. But I mean, by looking at the blood that came out on the video, that's some pretty you know intense blood loss yeah but how is that bull still alive but he went 300 yards and laid down for four hours and was still alive we jumped him and i'm, I'm thankful we gave him that time if in doubt give him another two hours mm -hmm. but i'm thankful we gave him that time because he ran about 100 yards out blood out tipped over and died Yep, when in doubt, give him time. But that's just crazy to me, mm -hmm. like how that all happened and like how we lived that long with that blood loss because that shouldn't have been like that. But Bulls are so tough, They're man. so tough. I had a bull one time that I hit. Like if you were to draw an X on an elk of where you want to hit him, behind the shoulder, halfway up the body, I hit him right there. But he kind of twisted or turned at the shot, and so it came out low and back on the other side. So we in perfect 12 ring came out low uh, and back on that liver. Now, I know you've seen this shot because you bow hunt a bunch, and that shot takes a long time to die. And so 
the blood was really tough to trail. So left him overnight and decided to come back the next morning and look for him. Couldn't f- I shot him right at dark and came back the next morning, and I just could not turn up that bull. I finally turned up his blood trail, like coming over this dry spot, and tracked him down, and he was sitting with his head up, still alive the next day. I had to put another arrow in him, and then he got to his feet and then died right there. But, yeah, same thing with that snowball that I killed a couple of years ago. I dotted that elk, and it went kind of... Uh, forward into him it went in a 12 ring and then went a little forward and yeah i had to put another arrow in that in that elk i gave him an hour and a half or two hours or something with the shot trailed him up and he was still alive laying there and had to put another one in those bulls are so tough and these are with broadheads that we're talking about that just goes to show you how hard they are to kill and i don't care how good you think you've hit something and this goes for rifle and i tell guys if i'm guiding or friends or whatever that bull is not dead until you see him tip over, feet in the air kicking, or you're standing over him, you trailed him up and you're standing over him, and he's deader than a hammer. Never, ever think you smoked a bull and that's guaranteed a dead bull. No. And it, I'm nervous every time I shoot one. Yep. My bull yep. I shot this year was quartered away. I put the arrow in him. I knew it hit him back, and I knew it was angled up in him. But I was still nervous because I know where the hit was, and the hit was a little bit back, and you don't know how they twisted the shot. And so that whole night, I just stressed. And I remember talking to Joe, the cameraman, and talking to my buddies when I shared camp with him. And it's like, man, yeah, hope it angled. If it angled up in him, he's dead. And you just kind of keep playing the scenario, and you watch the footage, and it's like, oh. And then go back the next day, and he didn't make it 100 yards, and he's laying there dead. That's what you like, you know. Uh, But but they are tough. You have to hit the vitals. It's lungs, heart, or liver. You do not get them or you got a 10 percent chance you yep. know lungs harder liver and it's got to be through center of body i mean sometimes you can make a decent shot and get the top of the lungs and they they make it out like like your shot if you didn't hit that main vein or that main artery same thing that you're talking about elk are yep. the toughest animal on planet earth it takes a perfect shot them and a lot of people think they're big so they're a big target and they are they're a big target with big vitals but you've got to put that arrow so precise in that elk that you almost have to get closer to elk than you get to other species because they take an absolute perfect shot to smoke them yep yep absolutely it's yep it's so amazing looking back at my year with those two bulls i learned so much and i've been doing this a long time but i've still learned so much you never see an identical scenario Right. It's a, it's a, every scenario in the last 20 years is different. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love about it. Man. Yeah. No, I, uh, you love it with every fiber of your being, man. That's why it's so fun to sit down and talk with you yep. because you are such a student of the game and it means so much and you've become such a good proficient bow hunter. And so it's like so fun to compare notes and dive deep in the subject. So we've already gone for an hour, Dan. I've, uh, we've got to wrap this thing up, but, um, you're the man. What a great season. Thanks so much for coming Absolutely. on. I uh, really appreciate your friendship. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. I, I love getting together with you. And I feel like, too, you know, for guys that are listening to this, too, talk to your buddies in this camaraderie. Like, we learn so much from each other absolutely. with these conversations. And it's so important. It's so important to be connected and talk to guys and, and learn. Like, I've learned so much from you over the years. And a lot of my progress as a bow hunter is because I study your game. And I think that's another way to just get better mm-hmm. is just keep talking, study everybody's game, you know, be connected, and you're going to get better at the craft a lot quicker than you would if you're just going to do it by yourself. Mm-hmm. Spot on, man. Yeah. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, thank it's you. It's always a pleasure. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right, guys. It's a wrap. 
Um, such a fun conversation with Dan. Uh, guy is such a great elk hunter, and and I just love uh, these in-depth conversations where we get to pick each other's brain. I've really learned a lot from Dan over the years, and um, just a, a great bow hunter. So great episode. I was really excited to release that to you guys. So hopefully you enjoyed it and uh, pick up some tips for this season's elk hunting. Thanks again to our sponsors. Thanks to Cryptech, uh, Everly Stock. Um, thanks to Mountain Tough, thanks to Black Ovis, and thanks to Camo Fire. And thanks to uh, Eastman for all their support of the podcast. They sure appreciate it. And uh, everything I get to do, the, um, the articles, the hunts, the, the videos, um, just really appreciate the support. So, um, yeah, it was a great expo. We had a great show, got some great recordings, and um, good to hang out with those guys. So, uh, yeah, just back and, um, man, getting things put together. The the range or the garage is getting so close. I'm just uh, uh, days away or, you know, maybe I can even have it today. But, yeah, starting to get it pretty well organized and shooting pretty good on it. So um, pretty stoked for that. And uh, so got that put together. Um, yeah, just enjoying this house, enjoying having some of my normal life back. I've been working on some projects, but... Um, also been getting my workouts and runs in, shooting my bow bunch, and then um, uh, been fishing and hitting the rivers, which I absolutely love. It's kind of off-season fishing, and and um, so yeah, I've been out with some buddies and had some great laughs, and Dylan Ness came down a weekend ago. We got him so good, and uh, buddy Chase came down, I had my uncle Lloyd down, and so yeah, just been fishing and having fun and um, spending time with the fam and just enjoying having my normal life back, so I uh, really do feel like myself again, which is good. Um, so with that, man, just going to be training hard, trying to draw some tags. I'm really trying to take things to the next level, uh, the next level for me. So I'm um, going to work really hard here in this, this off season, really commit myself uh, to bow hunting, which I'm so excited for. So i uh, got some big trips coming up, and um, hopefully uh, some good tags in my future, and hopefully some good tags in your guys' future Um and uh, some good hunts, some good adventures. Uh, so uh, right now is the time to be planning for these things. I mean, we've got to line up these hunts, so we've got a place to be in the fall. Um, so get your name in a hat, draw some tags, and start planning that hunt. And uh, thanks so much for the support, you guys. I sure appreciate you guys and the um, the downloads and social media and things. I'm trying to put more content on social media, just um, more of my everyday life. So I've been working at that, putting that in the stories and posts and things of that nature. Uh, so it's, it's one thing I need to get better at. So um, And also uh, supporting you guys on there. Like It's a way to, to uh, see your guys' accomplishments and uh, be able to comment on that as well so it's it's uh, super important to um to this podcast and to the community that we built so yeah just trying to spend a bit of time on there but it's a fine line right we we got to be careful these phones are so addictive that you can waste so much time or you can not connect with your family because you're looking at this phone and sure there's a lot of cool things we can do with e-scouting uh, a lot of cool things we can look at and entertain ourselves with social media but we do have to put restrictions and limitations on it like there's so much to life is you know to actually be with your thoughts or to be present with your family and engaged and, and enjoying time with them in the evening so it's like um 
uh, done a good job of, of um, you know, being on my phone or taking care of things or answering things, uh, answering people back, lining up podcasts, whatever it is, you know, taking care of business. Uh, but then I've done a good job of just shutting it off, getting away from it in the evenings, getting away from it when I'm on the river fishing or when I'm on a trail run. And, you know, there's sometimes where uh, I can keep good tabs on my business or things that are going on or handle things in real time as they come in. So, you know, at times it's handy, but it's, you know, our minds are not meant to be into that phone all day, every day. And they're so addictive that we just have to put checks and balances and also set a good example for our own family and our own kids because, um, you know, they're they're pretty smart and pick up on everything we do. You know, it's one hard rule we've made in our family is never to look on your phone or be on your phone as you're driving to set a good example for our girls. And I, I just think that's a... Uh, a good thing to do for safety, you know, if, if, if nothing else to keep ourselves alive so we can, you know, keep being the head of our household. So, um, yeah, anyways, just a couple thoughts I have, but yeah, it's, um, it's a fine line. So be on the phone and, um, social media and take care of things and enjoy that time spent, but also get away from that thing and, and engage in real life and engage in my family. So, uh, Anyways, some random thoughts for the end of the podcast, but thanks so much for listening and really enjoyed that episode with Dan. Uh, I know I had picked up a few tidbits and um, just a great back and forth in conversation. So thanks again, Dan, for being on. Thanks again to you guys. And uh, with that, I'll check in with you next week.